Welcome to Lift Your Legacy. My name is Jacob Rupp, father, husband, and rabbi. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you unlock your inner potential and create change that will impact the future. Thank you for listening and let's get to it. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am thrilled to have Rabbi Ken Spiro on, who I'm sure is no stranger to any of you who are listening to this. Ken Spiro is a historian, rabbi, and a phenomenal speaker who is known as the historian rabbi. Uh, at Aish, he has books that are fundamental to anyone that's trying to get an understanding of Jewish history and the role that Jews have in the world, the Crash Course on Jewish History, the book World Perfect, and his most recent release, which is called Destiny. And today we jump into a couple different topics, his background, his focuses, and what are you trying to accomplish with his most recent release. So with no further ado, Ken Spiro. Tell me a little bit about how you came to be the historical uh, source that you are today and a rabbi uh, with Asia Torah. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting story. It's not the normal route. Um, I was actually raised uh, non-observant, uh, not Zionist, in, uh, born in Brooklyn, grew up in New Rochelle, New York. You know, my kids were all born in Israel and raised religious. My, my oldest son, who's now 31, an architect, he asked me years ago, he said, like, Dad, like, what does that mean? Like, you, were, you weren't, like, religious. What did you used to do, like, Jewish stuff when you were little? And I told them we used to have ham and cheese on matzah. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't kidding, right? I'm not kidding at all. Okay. He laughed. And he said, like, Dad, why did you bother with the matzah? I said it was Passover. We couldn't have bread. So I went to, <laughs> I went to public school, New Rochelle High School. I went to Vassar undergrad. I studied uh, Russian language and literature and Japanese were my interests because I wanted to do international business. And when I got out of college, I got into grad school to do a degree in business, but I deferred for a year to take a break. And I also actually wanted to uh, speak one of the languages I was learning. You know, we all learn languages in classrooms, but if you want to actually live it, you know, you got to immerse yourself. I always say, if you want to learn Spanish, you got to live in Southern California or Florida. <laughs> so, I could read Tolstoy in Russian, but I couldn't ask for directions on a street. So my plan was to go, I applied as a graduate student to the University of Moscow through Purdue University's teacher training program. And my plan was to go, I didn't want an MA in Russian, I just wanted a speaking practice. And then I was going to go to Israel because I went to college, you know, BC, before cell phones, before computers, before birthright. So I was going to do kibbutz upan because I'd never been. I wanted to spend some time in Israel. I had to kill some time before grad school. So when I went off to Russia... It was the bad old days of the Soviet Union, which some people might remember before 1990, basically. And when it was the Soviet Union, it was illegal for a Jew to basically live or learn as a Jew. You'd get arrested for trying to learn Hebrew or keep Shabbat. You know, I used to do anything I could to get thrown out of after school Hebrew school. And I ended up spending six months in Russia with like hundreds of 20-something-year-old Russian Jews who were risking their lives to do like secret Hebrew school. What was that? What was that experience like? When you, I, I should have written a book on it. I should have written a book on it. You're not it done yet. The stories, were, the stories were unbelievable. First of all, you never wrote anything down because if you got caught by the KGB and all these people were being followed and watched and bugged. Um, I used to go to these people's house and before they would, before we would talk, they would take the phone, say in Russian, "Now we're going to whisper and put it down and stick it in the refrigerator." You know, so you had to memorize everything and teach it over immediately, A, because it's the best way to learn, and B, because that was the only process you had of passing on information. So these guys were unbelievable, you know, and this was before cell phones, and people still had an attention span and their ability to remember (laughs) things. So 
I mean, the first Shabbat I ever had in my life was a secret Shabbat in this guy's parents' apartment. He was living in the typical Russian living room as a bedroom, two-room apartment, crazy stuff, with the parents locked in the bedroom, hiding because it was illegal to have a Shabbat dinner. And these guys had taught themselves Hebrew. They had become secretly observant. They had no kosher food, by the way. There's no meat. There's no wine. There's no nothing. The guy made kiddush on a cup of water with three raisins floating in it. And, and they had nothing, no challah, nothing. And I'm, I'm talking about like typical, you know, American. I'm going to Israel after this and I'm going, you know, some of these guys have been waiting for a decade to go to Israel. So I was so blown away that I said, there's gotta be something more to this Jewish stuff of all these people are risking their lives. So maybe I'll do something a little more intense and meaningful and just go to kibbutz and pick grapefruits with up Danish volunteers. <laughs> so uh, my roommate in college actually had been to Aisha Torah for the summer before we graduated. For a few weeks, he'd stumbled into it and was studying a little there. And he suggested he was actually going to take a break from his grad school and go back also and learn. So we made a little deal. We're going to go back together. And we came back to Israel. This is a long time ago. Um, my plan was to stay for three months. I'm now, as of this month, 36 years in Israel. It's been longer than I planned. And I stayed. I studied full-time. I got smicha, which is rabbinic ordination. My mother told me it wasn't a great job for a Jewish boy, so I went and got a master's degree in history and uh, got a licensed tour guide, became a licensed tour guide. It's really just the same skill. I always say <laughs> guiding and history teaching is... Same skill, just one is outdoors with better background prop tours. So it's more or less repackaging what I do. But just to really answer your question, um, I never took one class in Jewish history. I am completely self-taught, which, you know, like they say, amateurs built the, the ark and professionals built the Titanic. So uh, anything you, <laughs> so anything you really like use and love in this world, people ask me, how do you know so much information? I say, you got to, there's only three rules. You got to be interested in it. You got to make the effort to learn it. And the rest when, is easy. When did this love or the unique approach and, and looking into Jewish history really take you? Because I know you're always interested in history, but was there a moment where you're like, there's something deeper here? Or tell me about the uniqueness of Jewish history and why you've dedicated so much of your life to it. Well, I, did, I didn't have an epiphany moment where suddenly the clouds opened and I saw clearly. I always liked history as a hobby. You know, I like to read books in history. Um, I started like sort of non-officially tour guiding when I was in the old city as a student, even taking people around and showing them things. And then gradually, I really fell into it. You know, like, you know, I say man proposes, God disposes. If someone had told me, you know, 35 plus years ago, I'd be an Orthodox rabbi living in Israel teaching history. I would have said I had a much more likely chance of being an astronaut living on Mars. You know? So, uh, but what I have to, t I have to say what really connects me to history besides my natural love for the general topic of history is you know there's a great there's a great quote by Bolingbrook Bolingbrook's a British lord from the 18th century he has one of the greatest quotes about history he says history is philosophy with examples that's really a great you could do a whole class just on that because you know I always say a capitalist and a communist a hundred years ago could have argued about which economic system of government would take over the world communists were deterministic they believed that human nature combined with economics would lead the world to a workers paradise so in theory it sounds like a nice idea but go run that through a hundred years of human history and you see that communism has been an abysmal failure uh, that has caused probably more death and suffering than any ideology in all of human history. Capitalism, okay, it ain't perfect, but it's doing a heck of a lot better. 
So the, the, but out of the idea that I really clicked with was the idea that, you know, you could take a theoretical idea and run it through history like a scientific experiment and see, does it really work or not? And I sort of tweaked the quote and I said, history is not philosophy with examples. History is hashkafa with examples. And hashkafa is the Hebrew word for worldview. It's how we Jews view the world, how God interacts with the world, which in theory, you know, we talk all about these things in Judaism. God, he's the creator, sustainer, and supervisor. He knows and controls everything. History is a control process leading to a destination. You could talk about all those things theoretically and philosophically. But the coolest thing is that we have now, we're in, you know, we're 3,329 years since Mount Sinai. You know, that's a long time. Or, you know, and we can now run through all the patterns that are laid down in the beginning of Jewish history, the predictions in the Bible, and see how they either have come true or in the process of coming true. It's like gravity. Every time I let go of the pen, it, it lands in my hand. You know, it's incredibly empowering. And for me personally, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the best chizuk emunah I can possibly have. Chizuk emunah is strengthening of, I hate to use the word, faith or belief because I come from it from a very intellectual perspective. Just like I see laws in science, I see laws in history. Jewish history, by, by the way, violates all the laws of human history. Yet you and I are having this conversation today and I'm sitting in the Jewish state and Jerusalem reunified after 50 years, you know, of, of reunification and 2000 years of exile. So, you know, it's like David Ben-Gurion says, you know, if, if you, it, you know, to be a realist as a Jew, you got to believe in miracles. But it definitely shows me on a personal level that this is how it works. These are the playbook, the rules of the game. And it's what I totally connect to. And you can tell by the way I'm talking that I completely get into it. I feel it and I understand it. And I just love, love teaching it. Uh, two, two separate questions. One is there is, you know, politics is such a popular thing that so many Jewish people are involved with and thinking about. And it's being, you know, kind of leveraged by different you know, facets of the world that's trying to deal with the Jewish unengagement around the world to try to draw Jews in. Do you think it's problematic for Jews to be politically active without knowing the, the, the history in, in, the, in the backdrop? Is history, should that be much more compelling to the average Jewish person today than the political spectrum? Because we're only seeing such a small part of it. Absolutely. You know, I do a whole class. You can watch it on my website. It's called uh, Driven. And we have to understand something about Jews, and I, I demonstrate this point, I think, in the class pretty well, that Jews have a certain spiritual DNA. They have certain traits in spades. Non-Jews can have them too, but Jews have them so disproportionately, like radical transformative thinking. That is, from Abraham onward, the Jewish trait. The fact that, you know, Ernst von den Hagen, in his book, um, The Jewish Mystique, says that the four people who have most changed the world, where we look at the world in the last century or more, Freud, Einstein, Marx, and Darwin, that three of the four are Jewish is unbelievable. We also have incredible drive that Jews are so disproportionately impactful in the world that we're, you know, 0.2% of the world's population, but 23% of the Nobel Prize winners, 24% of the fields, medals, and mathematics, 25% of the Forbes list of the wealthiest people on the planet Earth, and Jews care. Take any cause to make the world a better place. You could think of in the last 100 to 150 years, <laughs> socialism, communism, feminism, black civil rights, anti-apartheid, doctors without borders, amnesty international. If it isn't run by a Jew, created by a Jew, it's run by a Jew. Right. But these are traits that are like a raw force inside us, pushing us. And no matter, you could take a Jew who is generations away from being observant. 
who knows nothing about Judaism, didn't even go to Hebrew school, you will still see these traits. The fact that the Salvation Army, the second largest Christian charity in the world, was founded by a guy named William Booth, who was a minister, but his mother was a Jew from Nottingham, England, just shows you can even make the guy a Christian and he's still going to do it. So, but what does it have to do with the politics? The reality is, is we Jews are just like a raw force pushing. I always say we're like a rocket ship. You know, a rocket ship can be used for great good, communication, satellite, the space shuttle, or it could launch an intercontinental ballistic missile. But rocket ships need, you know, they need a payload, they need fuel, they need a guidance system. And it happens to be for Jews that the payload, the fuel, and the guidance system are all really the same thing. That's what the Torah is really about. When in terms of like fuel, when you take Jews out of Judaism, and this is not me talking as a rabbi, it's just statistically totally provable and historically a fact. Within three to five generations, they're gone. But when Jews don't have the Jewish software to tell them how to use that radical thinking and the transformative ideas and the drive, first of all, they can do really bad things. You know, misguided Jews do some of the worst things in the world. It's not just Nobel Prizes and Fields Medals. You know, who do you think organized, organized crime? The Italians? Only when Lucky Luciano meets up with Meyer Lansky does crime get organized. You know, the biggest stock market scandals, Ivan Boski, Michael Milken, Bernie Madoff, you know, Harvey Weinstein. You're going to do sex scandal? He does on a scale that's mind-blowing. So Jews without Torah, it's, and it's interesting, the, the, the Torah and the oral law and the written law, Never pull punches, by the way. You know, God is like the ultimate neurotic Jewish mother. He wants us to hear the criticism. You know, the Torah, the, the Talmud in Tractate Beitzah on page 25b, it says if Jews didn't have Torah, they would destroy the world. And, and Rashi, the great medieval commentator, he says like Torah, I'm, I'm really paraphrasing Rashi now in a big way, but he says Torah is like spiritual Prozac for the Jewish people. It serves to moderate their personality and direct their energy. So you put it all together and you see it exactly with politics that Jews always mean well. We want to fix the world. But unless we come at it from the perspective of Jewish values and Jewish worldview, which, by the way, have been the values of the worldview that have totally transformed Western civilization and the whole world, the whole utopian vision of values for the world is basically from us, directly or indirectly. So we can get Jews who are using their energy for all kinds of isms, everything but Judaism often, and often end up literally giving their lives and their resources for ideas and causes and movements and political ideologies that are completely antithetical to Judaism. By the way, the best example is communism, founded by Moses Hess, a Jew who taught it to Karl Marx who said religion is the opiate of the masses. You know, you can't get more anti-Jewish than that. <laughs> so you're for sure. I always say Jews for Judaism would have Jewish software and a good Jewish education. It's not important because we need to preserve the tribe and don't give Hitler a posthumous victory. It's important because Jews for Judaism make amazing human beings for the human race. And God, anyone looking at the world objectively knows the world needs role models. The world needs values. It's, it's, it's vital. It's more important than anything. So who are, who are your role models? And I'm asking that from either your own personal experience or as in, in history, who sticks out or which period of time sticks out as particularly impactful for you? Sure. Well, I have to say, I, uh, you know, my, my, my most recent role model is my Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Noah Weinberg, a blessed memory who passed away pretty much nine years ago exactly. Um, he was a great, he's the first one to turn me on to this whole idea of Torah's Chaim, as we say, that Torah is a guidebook for living, that we don't do God favors. It doesn't need us to keep kosher or keep Shabbat or any of that stuff. It's the guidebook for how to live 
you know, as a human being and be impactful in the world, uh, for sure. And he's such an idealistic person that I would never have embarked on the journey I took, albeit unplanned, without him as my role model. But um, in terms of characters in Jewish history, it's, you know, it's funny, my, my, my English name is Ken. I never changed it living in Israel. And it's the worst name to have in Israel. For anyone who doesn't know Hebrew, Ken means yes. So people ask me what my name is, and I say it's Ken, and they think I'm an idiot. Um, but my Hebrew name is Avram. And I have to say absolutely that Abraham is my all-time favorite Jewish personality. First of all, he is the proto-Jew. He's not even, remember, Abraham isn't born as a Jew. He embarks on the first journey of being a Balchuva, coming back to Judaism, where he leaves everything behind him and goes in a completely different direction than anyone else. And he is the micro version of like the entire Jewish personality. Like again, radically transformative thinking, the idea of this one God when the whole world's worshiping idols to push a radically transformative idea on the world. When no one else wants to hear it, most people will kill you for saying it. Boy, do you gotta be driven. That takes the favorite Jewish word, word chutzpah. And he cares. These are the traits I think Jews naturally relate to and resonate with. And, and you know, for someone who went in a completely different direction like myself and never planned on it and, and dedicated my life to, you know, trying to impact the Jewish world. And ultimately, like I said before, it's not just for the Jewish world, you know, make a difference in the world. I think Abraham is by far the most shining example of all of that. But I also love King David, by the way. Why? Because, because he is an amazing example of leadership. Um, he's a he's the he is Plato's philosopher king. He's everything. He's a musician. He's a philosopher, a prophet, a statesman, a military leader, a Torah scholar, and he's very flawed. I know some people want to hear that, but he is the Torah. You know, there's some pretty amazing stories in the Bible about King David and the mistakes he makes. But the amazing thing of King David is when he is caught in his biggest mistake, which was, you know, seducing the wife of, of uh, Uriah the Hittite, his general, Bathsheba, who later is the mother of King Solomon, when confronted by Nathan the prophet. I mean, the fact that that story is even in the Bible is mind-blowing. The level of criticism that the Torah brings to the Jewish people is incredible. But his reaction is so inspiring. He says, I've sinned before God. Today, people are like, he told me to do it. It's not my fault. I didn't know. It's like Harry Truman on his desk. The buck stops here. So as an example of, of leadership at its highest, you know, I think he really is the best example. In your new book, Destiny, you tell me a little bit about the message that you're trying to get across and why that specific message. Right. So one of the things besides loving history and military history, I have to say I'm a big movie buff. And I love epic movies like Star Wars and The Matrix and Harry Potter and, and all, all this stuff. I love it, love it, love it. Lord of the Rings, of course, is the all-time best of all. And I noticed being a, you know, a historian and a, a scholar in Jewish history and, and looking at the plot of all of these stories, you know, where they take place a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away in another world or in an alternate world or even in our world. Um, there's a commonality of plot. There's like, as they call them, the beats to the story, that there's a cosmic struggle of good and evil always. There's always a huge bad guy, Darth Vader, Voldemort, you know, Saruman, and a little superhero, Luke Skywalker, Harry Potter, Frodo Baggins. And, you know, the little superhero doesn't even know he's the hero. 
He certainly doesn't want the job at all. You know, like the famous, the original Star Wars with, you know, Luke and uh, Dantooine looking at the double sunset and plotting his fate, you know, his fate. Is he going to go hide or is he going to like meet his destiny? So he doesn't even want the job, but he's sort of pushed by fate and forces into a role he doesn't want. The odds are completely stacked against him. I mean, it's like superpower versus no one. You know, he has a series, he should have been wiped out immediately. He has a, his multiple encounters with the bad guys that he should have lost, sometimes pretty badly beaten up. But he always manages to emerge, you know, intact and often with a lot of new strengths coming out of him. And in the end, after a very drawn out process, usually it takes three movies to do it. Um, in our case, it takes over 3,000 years. Uh, there's a final showdown between good and evil. And despite all the odds, evil is vanquished and wins. And I'm looking at Jewish history, and I say you could check off every one of these story beats and see that exactly as it happens in the movie, and it's so ingrained in what we expect, if it doesn't go that way, we are destroyed, which is why Game of Thrones is such an upsetting TV show you want to watch, because all the people you, you like get killed in it, you know? But we, we just, not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be. It's like innate in our way. This is the way, the reason these plots repeat themselves is because it's innate in our consciousness or subconsciousness that this is the way the story really works in reality. And if you plug in the Jewish people as the little superhero in Jewish history into the bigger plot, the broader scheme of all of Jewish history, and we've been around a long time interacting with a lot of people, including the greatest empires and some of the most evil people in the world like Hitler and Stalin, you see that you could check off every one of these beats. And what we think is fantasy is actually reality. You know, we run off to these movies to escape reality. I said, we're the, we're the protagonists in the story. We're like Frodo and, and Luke Skywalker. We're the little guy in the story. So why run off to the movies when you can live it? Like, I, you know, I always, I always relate to that a story that when John F. Kennedy wanted to be a, an actor, his mother, Rose, told him, you know, why play someone great when you can be someone great? And that's like the Jewish people. Unlike, you know, the movies, it's, we're, not, we're not one, we are a collective personality, the Jewish people. We have a, a responsibility collectively. Some of us are completely disconnected from it. Some of us run away from it. Some of us are anti it. But the proof that it's us in totality is that the people who hate us never distinguish between who we are. In Auschwitz, there weren't different lines for reform, conservative, orthodox, Trump supporters, Clinton supporters, <laughs> right wing, left wing, you know. The people who hate us all recognize we're Jews. You know, so we have to do the same thing on ourselves and recognize that we're all a collective character. We're all the children of Abraham. We got this amazing story. We're in it. And since history is, as, as they say, the magistrate vitae, the teacher of life, we should be learning from our history because it's the playbook for how like, to get through the perilous obstacles we have and get to the end of the story as quickly and painlessly as possible. So that, that's a great transition in, in the sense that if you're looking at the world today and you can answer this as an individual or, you know, sort of with the broad strokes of, of, of history that, you know, that, you, that you're dealing with, where are we? If I, how do we, you know, how do we relate to the, to the modern day? Or should we be depressed? Should we feel excited? And the follow-up is for the Jewish person that feels themselves disconnected. I mean, everyone wants to be, so to speak, Luke Skywalker at the end of the story, but probably going up throughout, it wasn't a lot of fun. Um, how do we find that kind of passion and, and enjoyment in our own life? Well, first of all, again, we have to, you have to bind to the mission. You know, like Luke Skywalker standing there on Dantooine, a lot of us run and hide and ignore it. And for every person who's Jewish in this world, there are at least 50 non-Jews who should be Jewish. So, you know, it's like the few, the proud, the Marines, that old commercial. 
anyone who is Jewish in the world today, even if they are completely unaffiliated to a synagogue and disconnected, you know, Zionistically and Jewishly, you're still part of that Jewish people and you're just as Jewish as the biggest rabbi living in Jerusalem. So we're all part of the story, whether we like it or not. Um, but as to whether we choose to buy into it, again, the, the key is, is, is the Torah. It's, it's, it's learning. It's, it's, you know, most Jews reject their Jewish identity for a place of ignorance. You know, I had a meaningless after-school Hebrew school education where most of my friends had to, their goal was survive your bar mitzvah, make a few thousand dollars in one day, take the checks, get the cross gold pen, and you don't have to deal with this anymore. You know, I was one of the lucky ones who managed to make it through, like, you know, one in many hundreds even, or even thousand who went in a different direction. But it, it's really just a recognition that, first of all, uh, taking the time to study to recognize what being Jewish is about. It's not just a cultural thing, bagels, locks, and cream cheese, New York Times on Sunday. It's not doing God favors by keeping kosher and Shabbat. It's recognizing that even the, the commandments uh, are a means to an end, and we have this mission in the world. That's when you really get the totality of Jewish identity and understand what we're about since Abraham to recognize that the Jewish people, we're the God squad. Remember that there's a TV show in the 60s called the Mod Squad. We're the God squad, that our job is to collectively live and act in a way that inspires not just our fellow Jews, but the whole world. People are supposed to look at us and go, wow, look at these people. Look at how happy they are. Look at their relationships, their marriages, their children, how they work, how they deal with everyone else. Like what's their secret? We need this in our lives. We got a system. We're like a very old established family business. We got a winning product that's changed the world. And unfortunately, sometimes Jews are the people least appreciate it. So the key to really identifying with this is to take the effort to learn. All the rabbis say that the study of Torah is equivalent to all the other commandments. You know, I always say you can't represent the Jewish people till you know what the Jewish people represents. We got to be educated first. Then we can decide, you know, it's a process. You know, I always say Judaism is like a ladder. It doesn't matter which rung you're on, but which way you're going in terms of your knowledge. There's no such thing as finishing it. There's a great quote from the Ethics of the Fathers, which is in the Mishnah, the Oral Law. It says, It's not for you to finish the job, but you can't give up. So we always should be moving up. You know, in terms of, it's funny because if we're looking at our careers, our salary, accomplishment, we'd all be taking tremendous pride in making more money, getting more recognition, more rewards. But somehow when it comes to Judaism, oh my God, being more connected, which is more religious, oh my God. I know plenty of guys I work with whose parents are tra traditional, conservative, whatever, not sort of there, but that their kids want to be more <laughs> they're freaking out. Meanwhile, if like you just graduated college and your son's going through med school, you know, every Jewish mother would think they died and went to heaven. So how come it is when it comes to that stuff, which is really the ultimate Jewish accomplishment, we don't take the same pride in it and push our children in it and recognize it's important. And also, we, you know, I was also raised in a generation where, um, you know, my parents weren't Holocaust survivors, but they were old enough to be for sure. We were told, we were guilted into, into being Jewish. You know, you can't give Hitler a posthumous victory. You, may, you know, you intermarry, I'm going to sit Shiva. When I was little, I thought sitting Shiva was like an Indian chief. <laughs> <laughs> Any parent knows, you know, that kids do what the parents do, not what they say. If you tell your kid, damn it, don't curse, they're going to curse. If you tell your kids, you know, Judaism was like so important, you got to marry Jewish, but you do like nothing Jewish. Your kids are going to. You know, if, but people see that Judaism is a central part of your life and it doesn't have to be at the expense of 
you know, being an accomplished person in a career and having nice stuff and a nice house and a nice car. It is not an all, it's not an all or nothing proposition, but when, when our children see that it's something that's central and important to us, that's what they're going to emulate bottom line more than anything else. Ken, I'm so fired up. Thank you so much. How do people find out more about you and about your recent book coming out? So I have a, a really good website. You can ask my mother, she'll tell you. Uh, <laughs> it's actually really easy. It's Jupiter. It's Ken Spiro, K-E-N-S-P-I-R-O.com. I have tons of content for free that you can listen, you can read, you can watch, videos, you name it. Um, all the things I sort of touched on with you now, you can watch in detail. And uh, there's also a link on the website. It'll probably be up today even. Uh, just The book just came out a couple, a couple of days ago where you can order the book from amazon.com. And I also have other books. I have a great book called Crash Course in Jewish History, which is, I have to say in all modesty, the most readable overview for, of Jewish history. I will, I will attest for that. You don't need the modesty. It's, it's true. I completely agree. And a book called World Perfect, which is the Jewish Impact on Values, which is also a great Jewish pride book. All, all three of them are, no, all, all two of them, and God willing, the third one will be uh, very, very well-worn on my... Uh, I'll, on I'll come see you. I'll, I'll sign your newest copy. Okay, done. Thank you so much, Ken. I appreciate it. There you have it, folks, another inspiring episode. If you enjoyed this, I ask you to please share this with your friends and to like us over on Rabbi Rupp through Facebook or on YouTube. And the more that we're able to get these important messages out, the more that we can really make an impact in the world. So I encourage you, please, to stay tuned. Uh, we have a ton of amazing speakers coming up and also to tell your friends about it. Thank you very much.